0: Protests in Iran are alive and kicking, and they're spreading throughout the country despite the deadly crackdown by the regime. At the same time in Russia, hundreds of thousands of people are voting with their feet and they're leaving the country as a reaction to Vladimir Putin expanding the draft to wider parts of the population. Can these protests be successful? And how are we to evaluate them? How can we actually support them if we find them honorable. And are regimes like Iran and Russia able to pull a Tiananmen Square type of massacre at the time where the whole world is watching from social media? This is Nikos, and this is New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Iran Institute. And with me today, my colleague, Ben Bayer. Hi, Ben. And the first question is, why should one care about protests taking place in another country? Why should one take a, a position and why should we bother in evaluating what is happening?
1: I think that's a really good question. And I think the answer has to do with uh, understanding how philosophy applies to the real world. So Russia and Iran are, are some of the starkest, clearest examples that we have today of uh, just strict dictatorships. And they each in their own way exemplify one of the major four criteria that Ayn Rand herself gave for identifying dictatorships. They have one party rule, they have censorship, they have expropriation of private property, and they have in one form or another, uh, executions without trial. Uh, They have them officially in Iran, I believe. Uh, They're not official in Russia, but there are also a lot of mysterious deaths of journalists and dissidents by, uh, often by means of biological agents unavailable to uh, private individuals, which I think has led a lot of people to believe these are executions by uh, by the state in indirect form. So we've got really hardcore dictatorships. How do they function? What, what? How does a dictatorship function? How does one deal with it? That's a question that should be on your mind if you're interested in preserving freedom around the world and including wherever you live, because you need to know uh, how dictatorships gain their power how they lose their power i should also mention somewhat indirectly I mean, these both of these dictatorships are also countries that have historically threatened uh, american interests and western interests more generally because the of the fact that they are dictatorships because they are in effect at war with their people uh, and deplete resources at home they have to they have to distract from that problem and begin to threaten populations abroad. And, and the ways in which Russia and Iran have done that are are both obvious. Russia is a major nuclear power. Iran is an aspiring nuclear power. Uh, Iran is a sponsor of terrorism, which emanates from the same ideological orientation as its dictatorial regime. Um, I mean, I think it's it's worth pointing out, neither of us are experts on the two countries that we're about to discuss, uh, or on the exact kind of policy that the West should have them. Although I think Nikos, you have more uh, expertise in international relations than I do my backgrounds in philosophy. though. I should say I used to be an international relations major focusing on Russian area studies for a while. Um, but that being, this, that being said, uh, I think we can, with our philosophic background, observe some of the bigger, more obvious trends in these countries, and we can draw some lessons from them. We can see how certain philosophic principles are in action in a very stark way. And, and draw some at least generalized lessons for I think how we need to deal with these countries and how we need to think about uh, what it takes to protect freedom uh, generally all over the world.
0: And with these protests, uh, some people are a bit skeptical particularly in Iran because they bring the examples of previous waves of protests such as for example, the Arab Spring that have turned out in a way that would not be desirable for someone who shares, uh, let's say, the values of, of freedom. But I think this time the protests in Iran are worth supporting, and let's see why. So the protests were triggered after a 22-year-old Iranian, Kurdish-Iranian citizen called Masa Aminion died in the hands of the police. So she was arrested for not observing the veiling laws, the law that says that a woman in Iran needs to cover her hair, her head, and her neck. So she died in custody under mysterious situations. Uh, There are many claims that there were signs in her body that she was being beaten up. The official line of the regime is that she died of heart attack. But what is not disputed is is that she died in the hands of the regime and she was arrested for the veiling laws. And the veiling laws is a very important uh, characteristic of the Iranian regime. So the regime came to power in 1979 with the Islamic Revolution. But the revolution, the Iranian revolution, was not only the Islamic revolution. It was a revolution against the Shah, and it was supported by many secular Iranians. Actually, it was a very big revolution in terms of how many people participated. But the point of demarcation, the point when it became clear that now it's the radical Islamists that are the new order in Iran, was the imposition of the veiling laws. And this happened at some point, very early in the first months after the 1979 revolution. So, these laws are uh, actually observed by a special branch of the police, the guidance patrol. So, these people have as their job to find women who, don- who do not observe the veiling laws or other people who are dressed indecently with whatever the regime thinks that is. And actually, Many women are arrested every year. Sometimes they get away with a warning if a, a, a male citizen comes and says, "Yes, I know her. she's not going to do it again." But we've had cases of arrested women being beaten or being tortured and being terrorized. Now, the other very important thing is that the observance of the guide of the of the veiling law is a key characteristic of the regime. This is why. They are, it is observed not only by the official police, the guidance patrol, but also by the militias of the Revolutionary Guards of the Basids, which is the force within the Iranian society which is most loyal to the revolution and most loyal to the clergy. The Revolutionary Guards is the bigger body and they have a particular branch, the Basids, that takes care of uh, making sure that the society observes they observe the ideology of the regime. So protests have spread throughout the country and we've seen some images that are very, very, very powerful. We've seen women defying the authorities and taking out and uh, taking, unveiling their, their head and waving their hair. And it's, uh, it's, there's some very powerful, powerful moments there, but also there has been a very strict crackdown by the regime. And the death toll based on who you listen to, I think it's credible to say that, we, that more than 85 people have lost their lives. And actually, we can see that we have some a very powerful video footage that uh, was uh, circulating in social media this, uh, this morning. So let's have a look at it. What we see here is, yeah, we can have the, the natural sound for a minimum. So, you see there many school children taking out their veils and shouting to this speaker. This speaker is part of the Basij militias. Again, this is the long arm of the Islamic revolution. This is the long arm of the regime. And it has under its control the education system. So school children, young girls, heroic young girls, so openly define the authority of the Basij is something which is huge. And obviously, the regime did not expect this. Otherwise, this guy would not go to the school. So the regime finds itself in a very difficult situation, in a situation where many people saying, we don't want you anymore. We know what you're about, and we're not buying what you're selling us anymore. The thing is, there have been revolts in the past in Iran. The latest example, 2009, the so-called green, uh, the the movement that came uh, as a reaction to an election that was considered to be rigged so as to favor a, a, an Islamic regime's hardliner, but it looks like something very big and important is happening in Iran these days.
1: Yeah, Nikos, I saw that same uh, video this morning and was uh, struck by it. As we've been seeing uh, videos of street protests, uh, you know, mostly with adults, um, for several weeks now, but you know, when it's gotten to the level of the kids are being willing to stand up, that's really astounding. And something that will connect to one of the themes we'll talk about later today uh, in relation to Ayn Rand's own thinking about how uh, people resist dictatorships around the world. Um, things have been uh, unprecedented, I think, in, in Russia as well. And of course, the, the Putin regime uh, has been Headed in increasingly authoritarian direction for uh, more than a decade at this point, but uh, the latest controversy comes, of course, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, February 2022, and almost immediately there were there were uh, anti-war protests across Russia. One uh, place I found said uh, over 60 cities uh, eventually became involved in these, and you know it's it's important to flag that the 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 different protests have been organized by a whole range of different groups across the political spectrum uh, communist groups, nationalist groups. Uh, what's especially interesting though is is the most recent set of protests so the, the initial set that was launched right after the Ukraine war began was more or less put down uh, by by Putin's uh, uh, you know, security apparatus by late March and had been sort of uh, quiet since late March. But what changed, of course, is in September, the Ukrainian army started winning, they started pushing Russian lines back, uh, sometimes even into the Donbass and uh, uh, the other occupied territories in the east that have been occupied since something like 2014. So making really really aggressive moves uh, to recapture lost territory. And the the, the the Russian lines are collapsing. It's clear that Russian soldiers are demoralized. So Putin decides to what he calls mo- do a partial mobilization, which means he's imposing the draft basically on uh, all draft age uh, men in Russia, uh, a- aiming officially to collect uh, up, to round up about 300,000 of them. Some people speculate that it's more than that. Well, that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back in effect because uh, this is now really starting to affect broad sectors of the Russian populace. Even some Putin supporters uh, found the the methods used to start rounding people up to join the army to be rather arbitrary and capricious. And in this case, uh, so a, a new round of street protests began and they've been going on for a couple of weeks now in Russia. They've been spearheaded by a group named Vesna which is a, a liberal democratic organization that's previously focused on opposing different forms of corruption and censorship in uh, the, on behalf of the Russian government. They've supported Alexei Navalny, who's one of the major opposition leaders. Uh, and what we have now is, is not just uh, street protests. We have soldiers who are basically mutinying, we have anti-war petitions being spread, um, Russian celebrities speaking up and uh, Since February, since the initial protests started, there have been something like 17,000 people arrested. uh, And that isn't the end of it. The the Russian state obviously didn't want this kind of uh, uh, protest to be occurring. They didn't want open dissent. They've passed laws now. Uh, further repressing journalists and media outlets, who, who, not even necessarily because they were taking sides with the protesters, just because they were covering uh, the fact that protests were happening. We've had several independent radio and TV stations uh, shut off the air. There have been laws passed to basically make it illegal uh, to even uh, not only uh, speak up in favor of the opposition, but also even to call what's happening a war, because of course, what Putin wants to call this is a special military operation, it's not a, it's not a war. Uh, we've seen the Russians restrict access to Western social media and uh, broadcasts. And it's even uh, now, I think, punishable by 10 years in prison to try to dodge the draft. But what I find especially astounding is in, in just the last week, Uh, When immediately after this mobilization order was imposed, you've seen a real mass exodus of Russians, especially young ones of military draftable age out of the country. Um, Already uh, immediately after the war started, there was the beginnings of such an exodus. By some estimates, uh, 300,000 Russians had fled uh, by April. Uh, I saw one source suggesting that it's now something like eight hundred thousand who've left. Uh, three hundred thousand of those were maybe four hundred thousand of those were just um, since the draft order. and you know it's hard to know how uh, accurate those figures are, but you get a sense that it must be it must be tens of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people leaving because there are videos of people lining up for miles and miles, maybe nine miles on the, the Russian border with Georgia uh, trying to get out. Uh, and one figure that I found said that 100,000 of these people have fled to Kazakhstan. You know, Who wants to flee to Kazakhstan? When things are looking better there than Russia, you know there's a problem. So this is a huge problem for a country that has only got 147 million people uh, and which already is facing a demographic crunch because it's an aging population and there's a dearth of young people, the ones you need to prop up the economy, the ones that you need to be uh, making it productive. Now they're all leaving because they don't want to be drafted. Uh, Their mothers are in the streets protesting because they don't want their sons sent away to war, to a war that they don't understand why it's being fought. Uh, and uh, just I'll add one last figure to this, which is that uh, by some estimates, there have been 80,000 Russian soldiers killed on the front line with Ukraine. And that's got to be figuring into the the outrage. Um, 80,000 soldiers in a war that has gone on for six months, just as a, a way to contextualize that. There were about 58,000 Americans who died in the Vietnam War, which was a war that lasted 20 years. When You've got 80,000 dying in six months. That's a, that's a massive hit to the morale and to the, uh, the, the well-being of the country. And so it, you, you get a sense of why these protests are happening.
0: And uh, you mentioned Kazakhstan. Actually, it's probably not that bad I recall applying to a university for a job there 10, 12 years ago, but that's for, another, that's for another story. So at the moment, every country in the area looks like a better choice than Russia, because even this veneer of freedom that existed before, uh, before, the, before the war has now, actually, has now actually disappeared. So let me also say something about Iran and how Iran views these protests. So quite often when there is a regime that is under threat, The question is, can the regime liberalize itself a bit so that it stays in power? But the issue is here with Iran, the case is an either-or. It's either the protesters that win or the regime. Because the protests are not merely uh, asking for something like we want higher wages. That the regime could accommodate. But if you see the slogan, which is life, freedom, women, one of the main slogans, or women wanting to live their life not under the Islamic law. This is something which is an existential threat for the regime. And this is an existential threat for the main power inside the Iranian society, which is the revolutionary guards. It's the people with the guns, to put it simply, and it's the people who have a carte blanche from the ideological elite of the movement, from the priests. From the Council of, uh, from the Guardian Council, which is the Supreme Leader and some other clerics, they have a card blanche to spill the blood. They have a card blunt to intimidate and terrorize the protesters. So the stakes are very high. This is not a case where you can tell the protesters, "Okay, I'm going to give you these. Uh, this I'm going to throw you some uh, slight reforms, and we all go home happy." So. Iran is capable of doing a very, very mild concessions. For example, recently we saw that women were for the first time allowed to attend football games. But the question is, can the regime survive a reform where women, for example, can unveil? My, my judgment is that no, the regime cannot survive. this. So here's now what I see as the biggest question here. Is the Iranian regime, and we can also discuss about the Russian regime. Is it willing and is it capable to spill mass blood in the streets? So for example, the, the, mean, the moment that comes to mind is Tiananmen, is the moment in 1989 where the Chinese people had stood up against the regime and the regime was not afraid to spill the blood of these to massacre the demonstrators. And back then, there was one picture, you've all seen it, the guy in front of the tanks, holding his bags and putting his... So it was a passerby, it wasn't... But he thought at the moment that something is happening here, which is important, I will stand in front of the tanks. And this one image became so iconic. So today, when we have social media, when we have the whole world watching Iran, the eyes are on Iran, can the Iranian regime not... Terrorize and kill some people here and there in the dark, or in uh, but can it spill the blood that uh, it's definitely morally capable of spilling to to end this? And something similar could be could be asked about uh, about Putin. So have you got thoughts on that, Ben?
1: Yeah, definitely. You you mentioned that uh, the Iranian regime has been able to appease its population to some extent by by offering certain kinds of limited reforms and that's allowed it to, to hang on to power. And uh, I think there's a slightly different dynamic in, in Russia. What's pacified the population there and given Putin his base of support is, over the, the years that he's risen from an elected president to basically an unelected dictator has been his ability to deliver both uh, prosperity uh, through the, the, primarily through the energy industry, but also uh, glorious military victories. It's, It's worth pointing out that Putin rose to power because of his success in wars that he initiated basically in places like Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, and Syria. And so if his whole appeal is built on bringing glory to Russia uh, through these kinds of uh, military victories, what happens then when he stops winning? What happens when he, as is happening now, uh, for the moment at least, in in Ukraine? Uh, And what happens when you have more and more Russian soldiers being shipped home in body bags? I mean, 80,000 is a lot, and it's starting to impact Russian popular opinion. I've I've seen polls suggesting that, it, you know, upwards of thirty percent of Russian citizens now think the war is being lost uh, in Ukraine. That's independent of whether or not they actually supported the goals of the war. Um, it used to be the case that, you know, so it's one thing to rally the population on your side; it's another thing to just uh, keep them down through fear. It used to be that all Putin really needed to do to uh, keep the population quiet was to silence the most vocal dissidents. Uh, When there were uh, politicians or businessmen who stood up to him, tried to start alternate political movements, uh, people like Navalny, uh, he would just have them arrested or try to have them uh, killed, in Navalny's case, both. Uh, And that would that would do enough for the time being to pacify the population because they, they could see from these big examples what would be done with them. But uh, now you have a lot more people who have to be silenced. If you've got 80,000 dead soldiers, all of whom have families, all of whom talk, uh, even if you shut down dissent on the public airwaves, you can't stop people from talking to each other about how they're losing loved ones on the on the battlefield. He's got a much uh, more daunting task. And I, I found a, a quotation uh, in an NPR write-up about the protests where uh, they interviewed someone on the street uh, who says, I haven't heard the word war out of Putin's mouth. And if there's no war, okay, then how can we have a mobilization? That's the draft, of course, says Natalia Zarina, a retired university professor in an interview with NPR. He's calling up our young boys to die for nothing. I just couldn't stay home. so. I mean, it's, it's, it, you, can, you can make it illegal to call it a war, it has to be called a special military operation. You can call it a partial mobilization, even if it's a draft of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, but they're going to notice, uh, these people are going to start to notice, however, whatever the propaganda says that their friends and loved ones are dying and not coming back. So what can someone like Putin do uh, if it's not to just, it, you know, if censorship isn't enough? What can he do to try to justify himself rather than, you know, simply by lying to the people. Well, as far as I see, there's only a, a couple of things he can do. I mean, one is that he can, he, can, he can try to claim the moral high ground by saying, and this is, this is one of the things he's trying to do right now. He can, he can say, look, the people in uh, Luhansk and, Duba- and, and Donbass have voted to join uh, the Russian Federation. And therefore, when he's fighting this war in Ukraine, it's really to, for the in the name of justice. It's to it's to it's in the name of democracy. It's to protect the people who really want to be part of his country. And that kind of thing has worked for him in the past. It worked primarily when he did the same thing in Crimea in 2014. But here, it's just so much harder to make that story seem plausible because everybody knows. Um, that the the so-called election uh, that they just had uh, uh, last week to legitimize the Russian annexation was basically held in a war zone. <laughs> you know, that that many of these uh, many of these provinces are are actively in combat situations. There's no way that a fair and free election could have happened in a circumstance like this, um, especially when you hear rumors about, uh, people being uh, threatened by by the Russian soldiers to go and vote, or bribed to go and vote. It's, there's no way this can be seen as a, a free and fair election. And so this gives the lie to the idea that what he's really doing here is coming to the aid of uh, the Ukrainians. And the other thing that he can do, if, if that doesn't work, and and you see him possibly moving in the same direction, um, is you know leave aside the, whatever the question of the justice of the of the of the war is. If enough Russian soldiers die there, and a lot of them are dying, and he can tell a story that the, the soil of Ukraine has been, uh, has been watered by the blood of Russian soldiers. And if, if we want, if this war not to have been in vain, we need to avenge them. And therefore we need to double down and, and sacrifice some more in order to uh, uh, save face for Russia. And this has worked for Russians in the past. I mean, it's worked, I think your own book has made the point that the you know Russians have an inf- infinite tolerance for sacrifice. They, this is certainly the way that Stalin conducted uh, World War II. But we also know that the Finland
0: and the Finnish War before World War II, again, massive casualties, which at the end, however, Soviet Union won.
1: Yeah, and so. This is, I mean, it's it's possible that what happens is the Russians double down in their willingness to sacrifice uh, for this alleged cause, uh, but even the Russians have their limits, and I think, I mean, you saw this toward the end of the Soviet Union. You saw it especially with the war in Afghanistan, that after a certain point, uh, it was obvious the, that the Soviets were not winning; they were losing again. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of troops, and. It started to erode the position of the government. It started to make the government look less credible. This is something we're gonna talk more about. And so uh, at a certain point, they were no longer able to uh, muster the authority they needed to stay in power. And this is something we talked about on a previous podcast that when it came time to try to put down rebellions in various breakaway republics like in the Baltic States, the, the, the Soviet army just didn't have the will to uh, put down these popular protests. What was the cause they were fighting for? It was the cause. same. It was for a regime that had sent their their own comrades into pointless battle in Afghanistan. So, uh, the big question I think for both of these cases is 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 whether. Putin and whether the mullahs can can still muster the necessary w- will to sacrifice on the part of the population to put up with the injustice that they're seeing in front of them per- perpetrated by uh, the regime. And I, I have my doubts about the, the ability to do it. I mean, you, Putin just gave a lengthy speech uh, justifying his annexation of eastern Ukrainian provinces. And the most notable thing to me about the speech was the only thing he's able to invoke in order to try to justify what he's doing, the main thing that he dwells on is grievances against the West, uh, explaining how he thinks Western culture is bankrupt and decadent. And uh, I mean, he even at one point mentions uh, transgender ideology. So we're really supposed to, he's hes hes really expecting the Russians to die in Ukraine to oppose transgender ideology. I mean, the, the most well, that he can there do- there are people
0: is, in is, the West who are buying this. I know many libertarians, like, spend five minutes on the libertarian or the, quote, dissident right uh, spaces in social media. You will see that uh, many people are buying this and are, I don't want to call them useful idiots because I think this is a compliment. Uh, they, are, they are actually cheerleading, uh, cheerleading Putin. So, but even this image that Putin had as, like, I am the protector of these values. As you said, when people end up back home in coffins, this goes, uh, at some point, it goes away. At some point, you, someone shouts, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes. And I think this will be the moment where Putin's own propaganda will not make sense, Ben. And these days, particularly with the, that, uh, protesting uh, against the, that regime uh, ambassador who was at their school, I was, the, the, the scene playing in my mind was this iconic video from 1989, December 1989, where the ruler of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, the socialist ruler of Romania, is giving a speech from a balcony. Interestingly, he had just come back from Iran. So Thaggis regimes are always in good terms. And he thought that uh, he's going to sell his usual lies and uh, his usual stories. And the people who were put into buses go, uh, almost forced to go to that demonstration, they will use uh, they will, they will actually believe him. So it's very interesting, you see a leader who is bored, who doesn't even believe in his own words, then you see some people applauding, and then it takes a few people, very few, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, very few start booing, or asking very loudly questions. And within two minutes, you see more and more people saying, oh yeah, you're right. This, this guy is talking nonsense. We don't believe you. You say you are for the people. We are the people. Cut a long story short, within 10 minutes, Ceaușescu had to disappear from the scene and this triggered the process that within three days led to his demise and the fall of the regime. So I encourage people to go and watch that video. It's was Ceaușescu's last speech or you can put it on YouTube however you want. Yeah, no, and I remember it's, seeing- it gives you this lesson that taking away the moral sanction or in simple words telling to the tyrant telling to the dictator we know who you are we don't believe you you say you are for the workers we are the workers or similarly the basids the revolutionary guard militant a militiaman going to the school and the students throwing their veil to him and saying get out of here our education is not your job this is a moment which more and more people shout the emperor has no no clothes so maybe I don't know I'm carried away by the atmosphere of the day and I started my day watching this video from Iran so maybe I'm too optimistic but there is a point after which a regime has lost its legitimacy and then this gets internalized from the regime then the police officer starts asking questions Mm, shall we spill that blood for what or and, and it's, it's like a wave because courage is contagious. When you see people standing up, you do things that you would never believe that you would do. I have a family member who participated in, a, in the revolt against the Greek dictatorship in 1973. And when I asked her, how did you do it? I didn't think you were so courageous, no offense. She would tell me, this is when you see other people standing up with courage, you get this, uh, you get this courage. And it's not an act of sacrifice it's in a way it's the opposite notice the protesters in iran they are radiant of course they know they put their lives in danger but they are enthusiastic they are radiant and in some ways they are the exact opposite of the image i have in my mind of protesters in the west so ben you you were reading also an essay by ayn Rand, which is related to to protest and uh, the inexplicable personal alchemy so What's your? How did it make you understand better or see these products under a different prism?
1: Yeah, this this is a this is an essay that I think a lot of people should take a look at. We'll give uh, some information on how to find it later. It's called "The Inexplicable Personal Alchemy." Uh, she wrote it in 1969. Uh, the it's it's the obvious essay to talk about in connection with our topic today because she's writing about the events of 1968 in, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe, where uh, the, uh, the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia to put down a rebellion, uh, to put down the Prague Spring is what you've heard of. And uh, there were protests in Russia about it, just like there are protests today about Russian invasion of Ukraine. There were dissidents who protested in Red Square against the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Several of them were put on trial and the article begins by actually reprinting a uh, New York Times account uh, of the scene of what's happening when these dissidents are on trial, because another protest breaks out outside the court uh, in you know in support of the dissidents. And you have the bizarre prospect of uh, Russian dissidents protesting and and arguing with people who are, in fact, secret police, trying to explain to them why. Uh, why these people putting, being put on trial are are being treated unjustly, uh, and what's wrong with the injustice of the Soviet regime, and the question that uh, the average observer is going to ask about this is why are they doing this? What do they think they can possibly accomplish? Do they think they can change the mind of the of the secret police? Uh, the the New York Times reporter Henry Kahn, calls it an inexplicable personal alchemy, and that's of course where the uh, where the uh, the article gets its title, um, but Ayn Rand says at one point that it's not inexplicable. It's that these are uh, these are young people who have not become cynical with the world yet. They're They're intelligent people who still think that ideas matter, who still think that the truth matters, and who still think that the people they're dealing with and trying to persuade are like them, human beings who should care about the truth and about the consequence of the different ideas that are that are that are at play, and so that's why they're doing this what's a seemingly futile act of of trying to argue with the secret police, um, and it it, uh, it it connects to uh, one of the major issues that we've been talking about today. Not just uh, to speculate about what's motivating at least some of the protesters in both Russia and Iran, uh, but it, it points to something very important about the central role of moral sanction and of the moral authority that regimes have. They need to be able to continue to govern their population. So I'd like to put up a, a quotation uh, from that article, Inexplicable Person Alchemy, because this, this is one that's actually in parentheses uh, in, in the article, but it's, it's so important to what we're talking about today. She writes, a dictatorship has to promulgate some sort of distant goals and moral ideals in order to justify its rule and the people's immolation. The extent to which it succeeds in convincing its victims is the extent of its own danger. Sooner or later, its contradictions are thrown in its face by the best of its subjects, the ablest, the most intelligent, the most honest. Thus, a dictatorship is forced to destroy and to keep on destroying the best of its human resources. And be it 50 years or five centuries later, ambitious thugs and lethargic drones are all a dictatorship will have left to exploit and rule The rest will die young physically or spiritually. And I think think what we see happening in Russia and Iran right now is the best are speaking up. Some of them are dying. Some of them are fleeing the country. Uh, And it's got to be for the reasons that she's pointing out here is that the, the contradictions of the regime's rationalizations are becoming too obvious and evident to be explained away. That the censorship and propaganda are not enough to make it go away. Uh, and the, the distant goals and moral ideals that she speaks of here, that they use in order to justify their rule uh, and the people's immolation, are becoming more and more distant. And, you know, Nikos, one of the things I wanted to say about that, that Putin speech, where the most that he can do is to blame the West, is notably missing from the speech was really any kind of articulation of any positive ideals about what the Russians hope to accomplish in Ukraine. Here he is trying to justify his annexation of territories that he's basically seized through a war of aggression uh, with the thinnest veneer of justification in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the vote of the populace as if, as if uh, elections have ever mattered much to Putin who's you know, basically made himself president for life. And, He can't even articulate what it's all for. He can say, we hate the West, we're opposing the West, some kind of vague anti-colonialist language, which is pretty hard to square with the fact that he's just invaded and occupied a country. Uh, And all for the sake of what? It's not even indicated. All he's got to go on is hatred and fear of the West, nothing positive to be achieved by it. And that I think is, that is going to lead to his undoing sooner or later. We can't predict how soon, but you see his his people realizing that they're being asked to sacrifice for the sake of nothing. Some of them who are the drones, some of them who don't want to live themselves are are going to go along with it because not everybody wants to live, not everybody wants to be free. Um, But the ones who do are either going to die trying to be free or they're gonna get out of Dodge. And we see that happening increasingly in, in Russia and I think also in Iran.
0: So, Another thing that the last thing I want to bring up, Ben, is what could we do? And when I say we, I mean it in two ways. One, how does an individual give their sanction? Before we get to that, what should our governments do? So let's put it already on the table supporting someone who is revolting against the tyrant or defending themselves against the tyrant is not a call that we go and die in that uh, war or we engage our military. Maybe some people feel so inspired to do this that they can volunteer and do so. But this is one thing, because very often people will say, oh, you, you talk all the time about uh, Ukraine, you, would you would want to die for it? No, if I want to die for it, and whether I'll give my moral support, it's two completely different uh, things. And I think there's a lot of cynicism by people who are very anxious not to... Uh, not to support Ukraine because for reasons that we can discuss at some other point. But how should our governments uh, react? So 2009, as we said, there was another time when the Iranian regime was under a lot of pressure. Then Barack Obama, the then president, decided not to intervene even in terms of his rhetoric in, in favor of the revolt. And if you follow, if you believe his supporters, or the, the people who were in his team, the rationale was, look, Iranians, Iranian propaganda says that this is a revolt which is encouraged by the CIA. Therefore, if we go out and support opening this revolt, we are, playing, we are singing in the Iranian regime's tunes. We are actually doing the propaganda for them. So the first thing I want you to do, Ben, is to tell me what's your opinion on that. The second thing to put on the table is what has been the reaction of uh, the UK go- so of the US government this time. So the president president Biden has given his support to the protesters from uh, from I think he was in the United uh, Nations also this time we have some indirect or semi-direct support through technical assistance, trying to keep the internet uh, going with satellites and things like that. Also, we have to say private companies like uh, Facebook and WhatsApp and uh, Instagram. Uh, so the meta company, how it's called, is actually playing, wanting to play a role and showing some support to the protesters. And the third thing that this time the official UK go- US government has done is to put the guidance patrol, which again is the morality police of the Iran, under sanction. So their point is we are going to punish the people who are behind the death of the 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian girl and to do this we are sanctioning the guidance patrol. So two questions. One, what do you say to the people who would say don't support the protesters because then you are actually verifying what the regime is saying that these are, quote, uh, foreign uh, agency backed. And the second is, has has this time, the US government stood its ground in a better way than Obama did in 2009?
1: Like I said at the beginning, I don't think uh, we're in a position to uh, propose the exact policy stance that the West should take uh, in response to these protests, in response to the regimes who are cracking down on them, I think we can call bs about what they say, though, and uh, the idea that if you if you offer any kind of support for the protesters, then this will give the regime um, ammunition for saying that uh, they're they're really just being engineered or astroturfed by the West. It doesn't I don't think that matters. I mean, it, if it were a justifiable thing to do, then it would be a justifiable thing to do regardless of what bad propaganda the the regimes want to make out of it. But um, I mean, it's an interesting debatable policy proposition what kind if any of uh, direct support should be given to them. I certainly don't think there's any grounds to uh, get involved militarily uh, with Russia right now. Uh, They're they're much too much of a nuclear threat, but um, you know, there's, Case to be made for certain kinds of sanctions. I don't see if you're going to have sanctions, there's there's no grounds for restricting them in the narrow way that you talked about uh, the way they're doing it with Iran to just sanction the individual morality police and not the regime as such. Uh, they're obviously under the employ of the regime; it's the regime that's directing them, it's the regime that's uh, posing all these kinds of threats, not just to the populace but but to the West. Um, and and so that leads me to the to the broader. Thing that I think we can say with a reasonable amount of certainty about what the West should be doing, and uh, and that's that it, it should not be supporting uh, these regimes in the way that it sometimes does. I mean, right now with Iran, we have the bizarre specter of uh, of Biden, yes, offering some kind of verbal support for the protesters, but still trying to uh, engage in a charade of uh, diplomatic negotiations with with Iran to uh, come to some kind of accommodation about its nuclear program. Um, you can't simultaneously support those protesters while treating with dignity and cordiality, their murderers, you can't do it. And I mean, more generally, I think there are, for both of these regimes, uh, the, the fact that we're trying to maintain any kind of uh, diplomatic, any kind of positive diplomatic relations with them at all is something very difficult to justify. And um, maybe this is a good place for us to play one last video, because um, especially with regard to what the situation in, in Iran, uh, I have found in uh, the last month or so, uh, Masi Alinajad's comments to be most enlightening. She's, uh, uh, she was a dissident in Iran. She escaped. She lives in the United States. Recently, the Iranians sent, uh, sent thugs to try to assassinate her. Uh, and she's a really passionate and principled advocate uh, for, the, the, for the victims in Iran. And, and in this video, she's speaking to the Western leaders uh, with her view of what they need to do and in particular, what not to do. And I think she's got it exactly right. So let's hear what Alinajad has to say.
2: Hi, my name is Masih Alinajad. I'm an Iranian journalist, women's rights activist, campaigner against compulsory hijab. I made this video for all those female politicians from the Western country who ignored us for years and years. I have been calling on you in European Parliament, in Canadian Parliament, Norwegian Parliament, Swedish Parliament for years and years. I ask you not to obey compulsory hijab law. I ask you, when you go and visit The murderers of my country, Iran, don't wear hijab, don't legitimize our oppressors. You did. I have been warning you for years and years. I've been telling you about the dangers of hijab police. I've been sharing a lot of videos of Iranian women getting bitten up by morality police, but you ignored us. You ignored millions of Iranian women inside the country, who are right now removing their hijab and facing guns and bullets. You know why? Because the same police killed Mahsa Amini, 20-year-old woman, for just a bit of hair. Hair was visible. Now I call on you and linda from Sweden, Catherine Ashton from European Parliament, Federico Mogherini from EU. I'm calling on you, Segolan Gayal. I'm calling on all female politicians from Western country Now it's your turn. Make a video and say that you were wrong. Say that you celebrated Hijab Day. Now it's your turn to mourn for Mahsa Amini and show your solidarity with Iranian women. I remember that when I asked you not to wear hijab, you said that, you know, we are there to solve bigger problems. You see now, for a small problem, small piece of cloth, Women are getting killed right now and the regime shut down the internet. It's your turn. I'm not asking you to cut your hair the way that Iranian women doing this in public. I'm not even asking you to burn headscarf because for millions of Iranians, it's important to hear from you that you were wrong. And from now on, you're not gonna wear hijab in front of our murderers. And most important than this, you're not gonna legitimize our murderers. This is your turn. Because for millions of Iranians, Mahsa's brutal death became a turning point for Islamic Republic is a tipping point. The only thing can save them, it's you. We don't want you to save us. Stop saving our murderers. Stop helping them. Make a video and say her. Iranians are calling on you, all the democratic countries. Now it's your turn. Kick out all the Islamic Republic diplomats. Kick out all the Islamic Republic officials shut down their embassies everywhere because they're killing people inside the country it's your time to take action if you don't get united to end islamic terror believe me the terrorists they will get united and they end you and democracy yeah so
1: the the most uh telling words there, I think, are, we don't want you to save us, we want you to stop saving our murderers. And that's what the West has been doing by granting diplomatic legitimacy to, to, to the Russian authoritarian regime uh, and to the Ayatollah's neuron. And uh, I mean, she's she's even calling for, you know, kick, we, We're we're officially not supposed to have diplomatic recognition, uh, for Iran ever since the revolution in 79, and they, 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 they invaded our, our embassy, but we still have you know, fake phony uh, diplomats, the, the, the Iranian interest section, and those are the ones that she's asking to be kicked out. That would, I think, also entail ending the diplomatic uh, negotiation over Iran's nuclear program, um, not that we would ever trust them to abide by an agreement that we came to, came to with them in the first place. Uh, so Nikos, uh, do you have any final thoughts on, on Alinjad or, or any of the other issues before we start to wrap up?
0: Well, the final thoughts are, uh, I'll be a bit pessimist in terms of how much the West has actually understood uh, what the situation is in terms of how bad the Iranian regime is. And uh, we did an episode some weeks ago with Elan where we talked a bit about that. But the fact that they're still on the table with Iran on a deal And we're talking about a deal where you don't have anything to gain. It's like I'm going to a deal with a thug and the thug says, I'm not going to hit you and you give me this. I have nothing to gain for that, particularly if I'm way stronger than the thug, as it's the case with the United States and Iran. And particularly this thing where they are putting sanctions on the guidance patrol, but not on the regime. This is what Ayn Rand would call evasion. I'm trying to close my eyes to reality. This would be the equivalent for our friends to understand what this means. Imagine if saying, I will go to war against the SS and against the Gestapo, but not against the Third Reich, not against the Nazi government. This is the equivalent of Western government saying, we will impose sanctions on the guidance control, but at the same time, we're back. Uh, we, we, there's still a chance that we will discuss with Iran and we'll normalize our relations. There's nothing to be normalized because she said something very, Uh, very correct in the video. The Iranian regime does not care about security, does not care about its uh, geopolitical interest. It cares about its ideology. It's a regime that would rather die and perish and take its enemies with it, with its ideas, rather than live and prosper without its ideas. Don't take my word for this. Spend five minutes reading what the Iranian Revolutionary Guards tell about themselves and the way they view the world or spend five minutes watching uh, the either Ayatollah Khomeini or the current uh, supreme leader and you'll be convinced about what Iran is about.
1: So uh, before we wrap up, let me just uh, thank a few people who've sent us super chats. Uh, I don't know if we can answer all of the questions, but uh, let me answer one uh, question that's come in at least and that's uh, from Gail. Gail asks, how can American politicians be so blinded that they can cozy up to and support horrific dictators? And I think that the answer to that question, Gail, I, I can't give you a full answer, but part of it is gonna have to do with the fact that, that many of these, uh, many, many Western leaders share uh, some of the same moral ideals that the regimes are invoking in order to justify themselves. And so, you know, if if the Russians say, uh, we believe in sacrifice for the greater good of the nation, uh, the Western leaders can't say, well, that's a corrupt ideal, because they share in the Judeo-Christian idea that there's a virtue in sacrifice. Uh, if the Iranian regime says that we are a holy regime dedicated to to God and His higher purposes, it's again hard for Western leaders to attack the legitimacy the legitimacy of that ideal when they themselves think that there is something holy and sacred about religion, even if they don't happen to be uh, Islamic. They're they're Christian and they still think you know God is uh, some somebody who's a worthy object of sacrifice. So that's the best I can do on that. Well, there, there's the the second point, which is that um, insofar as they themselves share in those uh, ideals. They also think that it's good for them uh, to sacrifice in that they they think uh, comp- compromising their interests uh, in the form of a negotiation is justifiable. Uh, who are Western leaders to stand up for their people and their principles? Who are they to think that other countries should abide by principles of Western liberalism and individualism? Uh, it would be it would be uh, arrogant and prideful, uh, and if you believe that there's a virtue in sacrifice, and if there's a virtue in humility, then that dictates compromise in diplomacy, and, and that's exactly what we've seen them do. And Nikos, do you have anything to add there?
0: Uh, pff, many things to add, but uh, just to tell people that we are also going to be in Clubhouse. So I was trying to to think something about the question, which means I lost your part. So I'll keep my thoughts for the, for the Clubhouse on that.
1: Okay, well, let, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap up then. And the first thing we should remind people about is that we will be going into Clubhouse uh, right after this. Uh, d- get that. Get the Clubhouse app, search for the Ayn Rand Club. You'll find Nikos uh, and me discussing this and answering more of your questions on this topic for maybe 30, 45 minutes afterwards. I uh, also want to let you know about uh, some resources you can take a look at if you want to learn more about the ideas that we talked about today. So uh, I did a another New Idea Live podcast with my colleague Augustina Vergara Sid um, some months ago, right after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, on the topic of Ukraine and the power of moral judgment. Here we talked about uh, more about the, the the Western response to Russia's aggression and and why. Uh, it's important not to support them diplomatically and why it's important to condemn them. Why, Why, for example, Biden was right to say that that Putin's regime must come to an end, uh, whether or not he really meant it. That's exactly what the Russians need to hear if they're to lose the moral authority and the moral sanction that's otherwise empowered them. Uh, also like to recommend another resource for you. Uh, and that's, uh, do we have the, the other podcast or do we were we able to put, what's the next, what's the next slide? Okay, so we, we don't have that on the podcast, but uh, we talked today about the Inexplicable Personal Alchemy uh, essay by Ayn Rand. This is available if you get a copy of her book, The Return of the Primitive. Uh, it's a short essay. It's probably some of Rand's most powerful writing. Uh, certainly, uh, it's on an issue that's of personal significance to her, given that she was herself a refugee from Soviet communism. Uh, and then let me tell you about next week's show. Uh, next week, Nikos will be back uh, with my colleague Alain Giorno to talk about a uh, the new ideas from Francis Fukuyama. He's the one who predicted the end of history, or at least he's thought to have predicted that. He's got a new book out, Liberalism and its Discontents. Nikos, did you want to say anything more about this?
0: Yes. Yeah, so even if you are not interested in Fukuyama himself, it's going to be an interesting discussion and. We'll also throw, I'll also throw on the paper the issue of liberalism. So is liberalism the way classical liberals and other people call it? How should we understand it? Should we be in favor of it? Can we reclaim the title? So there's some quite interesting questions. So whether you're interested in Fukuyama or in his thought or on the issue of liberalism, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting discussion next week. Probably it's going to be Thursday with uh, with elan and also mentioning elan we did a couple of not a couple three four weeks ago so go in the unran institute channel go in the playlist with the new ideas live we did an episode on uh, on iran which is mention some of the things that were discussed today so if you want to spend some time to understand iran better after you've watched this and you join us in clubhouse Check this out uh, from uh, from some, uh, again, new idea live from some weeks ago, the episode I did with Elan on Iran. We talked about the Revolutionary Guards. We talked about the war with Iraq in the 80s. So it's gonna give you a good understanding of the country.
1: Uh, another announcement about an upcoming event that's of special significance given what we talked about today. Uh, the Ayn Rand Institute has regular donor roundtable meetings about every month, and uh, the one that's coming up at the end of this month is of special interest uh, in relation to this topic. We're calling it Ayn Rand Speaks to Russia. Uh, this will occur uh, Saturday, October 29th. It, you need to be an ARI member in order to attend, but uh, if you go to the ARI website, you'll find out how easy that is to become. Um, this, is, we will be rele- we, this will be the exclusive debut uh, of Ayn Rand's interview in Russian uh, with the Voice of America in 1968, this is uh, this is uh, I think the the only time I've ever heard her speaking her native tongue. Um, but this is uh, this is just around the same time as the Prague Spring is happening. Now she doesn't comment much on uh, contemporary affairs in Eastern Europe, but uh, it is she she's instead introducing her philosophy to a Russian speaking. Uh, audience. And uh, we're giving our donors uh, first exclusive um, uh, opportunity to listen to this 15-minute recording. We played five minutes of it Ocon this year, but now you're going to be able to hear the whole 15 minutes. The whole thing's been translated uh, for you to see. And uh, after that, we'll be putting it on YouTube and perhaps other channels uh, with the hope that it will reach Russian-speaking people around the world, because God knows they need to hear it right now. Uh, Let's see what, so that's again, Saturday, October 29th. I think the last uh, few announcements here are just to remind you that if you you enjoyed what we talked about today, please uh, be sure to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Uh, Click the uh, bell to get notifications for when we go live. Uh, Please subscribe. And if you're watching a recording of this, uh, leave a comment, share it, like it, help us reach a wider audience. Same thing if you're watching on Facebook, uh, and if you uh, have questions about anything that came up today, if you'd like to suggest to us new topics if you have uh, or, or comments that you'd like to make, send us an email at newideal at We read all your emails, try to reply to as many of them as possible. One thing I'd like to especially encourage people uh, to send us is, is questions for an upcoming episode. Uh, two weeks from today, we're going to be doing one of our Q&A episodes, this time just on a specific topic. The topic will be free will. And so if you have questions about the objectivist view of free will, about what's wrong with determinism, uh, please flag that in the email that you send to newideal at ironrand.org. We're going to be collecting those and doing a special Q&A episode just on the subject of free will. That's in about two weeks. I'll be be doing that one with my colleague, uh, associate fellow, Mike Mazza. So I think that's everything for the day. Uh, Thanks, Nikos, for this stimulating conversation. And we will be We'll be heading over to Clubhouse right now to continue to answer your questions. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.